I still remember where I was the first time it hit me. I maybe do have ADHD. And it's funny, I posted a TikTok the other day about having ADHD and a good friend of mine texted me and said, remember when you swore to me you didn't have ADHD? Oh, goodness. Well, listen, if you relate to that at any point in your life, I want to share a podcast that you should tune into. It's called ADHD Aha, hosted by Laura Key. It's candid stories from people who share the moment it clicked that they or someone they know has ADHD. In each episode, you'll hear heartfelt interviews about the unexpected emotional and even funny ways that ADHD symptoms can surface for adults. And it doesn't always look the way we thought it would. So check it out. To listen to ADHD AHA, search for ADHD AHA in your podcast app. That's ADHD AHA with AHA spelled A-H-A. Hello, you sentient balls of stardust. Welcome to Struggle Care. This is the podcast about self-care, mental health, and just shit that I want to talk about in general. I'm here with genuinely one of my favorite TikTokers, Shaheem. And you are a licensed professional social worker. And say a few words about yourself so that the audience can know who you are. So I'm Shaheem. I am a licensed social worker, practicing therapist. I'm an LMSW. So this close to my C, I had to take a year. That's a long, complicated, twisty, windy story. But <laughs> I am originally from Baltimore. I'm stationed in Brooklyn. I am queer as hell. I'm black as hell and loud as hell nine times out of 10. So um, <laughs> that is what you get from me. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I've really been looking forward to this because we're going to talk about codependency. And mm. I saw you do a TikTok recently on it. And I was like, I have thoughts. And I know you have thoughts. And that is really all this podcast is, is finding people that have like capital T thoughts on things that are sort of like mine and then bringing them on and then talking about it. So what? just give me your like one minute download as to like why the word codependency makes your ass itch. So I got a lot of blowback from that. Like people were so upset, but it was fine because like- Did you really- I did. And, you know, I anticipate it when you challenge people's worldviews. I find that that word is so overused and often like it villainizes people's desire to connect to other people. Because a lot of the times what is at the root of codependency is like completely swept under the rug. Right. And it's people who are seeking secure and safe connections. And especially in a world where like hyper individualism is pushed like to the forefront, like encourages people to further disconnect from the reality of like seeking connections and safe connections with other people, building community with others and having grace, conflict resolution and all of the things with people. And I think like one of the reasons why people feel so strongly about it is because a lot of us like want to pathologize away our desire to connect to other people and to be human beings and be social. So yeah, I find that the word is overused. I find that people like often use that, like the term codependency to like dismiss people's desire for connectivity. And I think like in our society, in our specific context, it like encourages people to disconnect from people around them, which is like connected to so many larger issues that we face as a society. And it just, it really does make my ass itch. You got that part right. <laughs> I feel like it's similar to like the phrase, like attention seeking, where 
It's not that there isn't certain behavior that's maybe like not working for you that you would like to work on. But it's like you said, like it demonizes the underlying desire. And then that person ends up like hating themselves for this desire. Let me say this. You are also one of my favorite um, creators. Like literally, I'm honored to be here. I saw your video when you talked about um, attention seeking versus connection seeking. And I was just like, thank you. Like that is the perfect way to describe that because a lot of the times, um, kids specifically, you know, I worked in foster care, the juvenile justice system, and I am like no stranger to the, the phrase attention seeking. A lot of children often dismissed, their needs are often dismissed as seeking um, attention, as opposed to like the acknowledgement that these children are like they are lacking connectivity. And instead of like us focusing on how we can solve that issue, um, which is connected to, again, these larger social problems, like loneliness is systemic. And instead of addressing these issues, we are reactionary and we attack the effect and not the cause. Like, But that is, like, again, connected to so many larger issues in this context because we never really address the root of the issue. We just disappear, we pathologize, and we dismiss. And that is something that makes my ass itch. <laughs> and I think one of the reasons why it gets so much blowback is because, and this is true of a lot of, like, pop psychology terms or like psychological terms in general is that you have people who have a genuine struggle or like a genuine behavior that's either not working for them or is destructive for them or or whatever. And they find a term that they feel like the meaning of that term, it helps them like move through whatever they're going through. It helps them identify what's going on. It helps them like work through something. And then they feel very defensive when someone like comes for that term And I'm thinking specifically of like, so a lot of my background is in addiction. Like I had a really severe addiction. I went through a long rehab and then I worked in addiction my whole career. So, you know, it's interesting, like we've been talking about like teachers and disabled students a lot on my TikTok right now. And everyone's like, well, you've never taught, but you would be amazed the similarities between working in addiction and like observing what's happening like on teacher talk right now. And there's also, I think, a lot of similarities with working with foster kids because it's this – because mine were always young adults. It was always like kids in their early 20s that had addiction issues and all the same stuff about like are they – like they're manipulative. They are dishonest. They are attention-seeking. They are like all of these things that really get slapped on them and – Codependent was one really big one specifically for the like the women that would come through. And in my addiction, my mother like really struggled with what she now believes to be like enabling behaviors. And she went through this process of like learning boundaries and learning that like, hey, regardless of what my daughter chooses to do, like I am my own person and like I can have joy in life even if she's not like I can't save her, but I can be there for her and all these things. But like the books, like my these core memories of my mom and these like Melody Beattie books on codependency, like in her like little bedside, right? Her little and every day, just like her little codependency books. And they really helped her. And I think that that's why like people can get really defensive because it's like, okay, we're not coming for your journey. 
Like if that word has done something for you, that's great. But like for every person that was like helped by that word, like it wasn't the word that helped you. And then there's like other people who are not helped by it. And so like, we're not taking that journey away from you. If like, that's an identification that has helped you. But I totally agree with you that sometimes a term, and maybe at one point, it was a helpful term, like, well, first of all, I think the term originated in addiction. And it was like, akin to the word co-addict, and literally codependent was specifically like you had the person who was dependent on alcohol. And then mm. what they found was that they were seeing that like the dy- obviously like there's a lot of dynamics that you can recognize in addiction like over and over and over like oh these all seem to be similar like regardless of where these people are in the demographic you know map but what they found was and it was obviously mostly men that they were treating like when this first started their wives also seemed to exhibit similar patterns of dysfunction and so the word codependent came about not because you're dependent on another person, but it was like this person's dependent on alcohol and this is the co-dependent. Like it was describing a dynamic between two people, right? Where like one is in this like chaos of addiction where they're literally like circling the drain going down and the other person is in that dynamic with them. And they're like creating this like kind of sick feedback loop where they're both going down together. And so she was the co-dependent and that's the term how it started. And then it kind of got hijacked and got like a lot of terms got so pop psychology that now, you know, if my boyfriend isn't calling me back and I'm upset about it, well, I'm just being codependent. That is a perfect example of what I mean when I say people overuse it. But I think you are pointing out something that is so important and it is the way that language is co-opted. It happens so often. And I'm going to say the next, this next part, I know every time I say this around a therapist, it's like a, ugh. A narcissistic personality disorder. Um, the way people talk about narcissism online, narcissistic abuse, and I, again, I'm not here to say like narcissistic abuse is not a real experience. And some people really do get a lot from talking about like narcissism. Um, but a lot of people do also overuse the terminology and lean heavily on like one. I just always careful about talking about it because people get really up in arms about this, but just basically like villainizing entire personality clusters of personality disorders and like basically dehumanizing other people and slapping the label on pretty much anybody that they come across um, who is an asshole (laughs) in one instance to them. And it is, I think like that is like a really like the biggest that I see on TikTok, like pretty frequently, but like Mm -hmm. the way that people take language and yes, it does help them in their journey, which is a beautiful thing. Like, but they take it and they like apply it broadly across the board. And I think a lot of language gets like eaten up into this like larger machine that is like frankly violent and it chews people up and spits them out. We live in a very carceral society where we are quick to other people and to like disappear people whenever they do things that are deemed societally unacceptable. And I think the way that we use a lot of this mental health language is a part of that. Like it is often co-opted into the machine. Like when I worked in the juvenile justice um, system, 
Attention-seeking behavior was like the most commonly used phrases to describe uh, children who were, frankly, like behaving like kids who were hurt because these a lot of these kids have been in the system for years. And like instead of like connection-seeking, it like, you know, attention-seeking. Like I think like the language is all a part of like this larger machine that seeks to like exploit other and, you know, basically like disappear people. And I think that's why when we do bring up things like, you know, maybe not attention seeking or maybe codependency is a little bit of a strong uh, choice of words for you to be seeking connection from your partner that we get pushed back. But I do think it's important to keep pushing back on these narratives because this is how the language becomes co-opted and not that, you know, I think language is, because I'm actually going to be talking about this probably a little bit later, but like language is so important. Language as a tool is essential. Having the words to put your experience in can make it easier for you to navigate your experience. It makes it easier to make decisions. Like when you have therapeutic language, like and you can understand if someone is like, for example, gaslighting you and you are able to call that out, it's really important. It's like these tools are necessary, but like any other tool, it could be used for good or bad, or it could be because tools are just tools. And there's like and a bell the curve use... of it, right? Like, okay, exactly. nobody knows what gaslight is. And then it's like, we learn what it is. And then it's like the really empowering word. And the more it's used and the more it's normalized, the more helpful it is to identify things. And then it hits like a zenith where we use it so much that now it becomes really watered down. And like, it's like helpfulness takes a nosedive. And then we have to kind of look back and go, okay, like, it doesn't just mean everything. And I think that's the point at which a lot of these like terms go from psychology to pop psychology, where there's like this short window of use. Yes, trauma bonding, trauma dumping, (laughs) like all those things. And I have an interesting question about the pathologizing thing. But let me take a short break here. I've never met a free trial I didn't like or a budget I didn't listen to, which is why Rocket Money is perfect for me. And it might be perfect for you too. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month so I can clearly see my spending habits. Plus, they'll help me create a custom budget and keep my spending on track. And they send me emails keeping me updated with where I am on that budget. Rocket Money will even try and negotiate lower bills for you up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users. They can find and cancel your unwanted subscriptions, and they have saved people over a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash struggle. That's rocketmoney.com slash struggle, rocketmoney.com slash struggle. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we're alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes a life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present, when the future no longer is a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean when you have a child to nurture a new life as another fades away? 
When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and was named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Okay, so one of the things, when you mentioned especially narcissistic personality disorder, I had this thought where there's two interesting things happening at the same time. So like, let's take that term, or even like borderline personality disorder. What's interesting about that is that I see people using that term to pathologize, like to demonize someone, like to take what's a, frankly, a pretty normal human response to deep, deep trauma and calling it, you know, something that is a mental illness. And it's like pathologizing. But then I see people taking the term and doing the opposite, where it's like they're trying to use it to say, hey, I'm not evil. I have this disorder. And so you can't be angry about it. You have to have empathy for it. You have to have. And it's so interesting to me how the use of the disorder language like does both at the same time. And I and it's like, Oh, I don't know what to do with that. Because on the one hand, we can't pathologize it too much. But on the other hand, it's like, but they're both making the same mistake, which is that this is this is a, I don't know, I, I can't stand personality disorders, because people don't understand the difference between the personality disorders and other disorders. Because like, there are some disorders in psychology, and this is the same in medical, or whatever, but like, where we see a cluster of symptoms, and that tells us the cause, right? Like if we say someone has diabetes, like we see the symptoms, the blood sugar, that, the other. And because we realize that that's diabetes, we know the cause. We quite literally know what's causing those symptoms. And it is, you know, the stuff happening in their liver, pancreas kind of stuff. And then there's other ones, right? Like, okay, you have the flu, well, we saw the symptoms and now we know you have the flu. And literally the flu is the cause. It's a virus that came in and it did X, Y, Z. But there are other types of disorders or even like medical ones where we say like, okay, you have chronic fatigue syndrome. We have no idea what causes that. We don't know whether there are multiple causes or one cause. We just know that there are people showing up with these clusters of symptoms and they're showing up often enough that we're clear that it is something. And so people, I don't think, understand that, like, when you talk about DSM and disorders, like, there are some of those that, like, when we say you have bipolar, we know that something is going on that's causing the bipolar in your brain. Like, it's not trauma. It's not, in, like, there might have been an environmental flip, right? But, I mean, it is something in the chemistry of our brain, or OCD. Like there's something happening in the brain that's causing all those symptoms. And I don't think people realize that personality disorders are not like that. Like there is not like a gene that causes borderline personality disorder or narcissistic personality disorder. Like that's not what we're saying. We're just saying that like there have been so many assholes that have showed up with this very specific constellation of symptoms that it is helpful for us to call it something because then we can better treat it because we can know that like if this works with that person, it might work with other similar like personality profiles. And I think that becomes really sticky for people because it's like, 
it's not quite as simple as like, I don't know, man, I've just got narcissistic personality disorder. So like, we don't want to demonize anyone, even if it is something, but it's like, well, not quite the same. And I think like you bring up a, like a really important point. I think it's an overarching thing that like, this is just really, it really grinds my gears. It pisses me off when it comes to conversations around mental health. And I think it's like, it speaks to the context that we live within the current state of society. But a lot of people try to operate in extremes and like, they don't like to find balance within all of these conversations. And I like to tell people all the time, like you have the one thing about like mental health, no matter which side you are talking about, like you need to have balance. Like there is a point where it's like, you have to hold yourself accountable for your actions having any disorder or any like it's not like if you are someone who can account for their like if you're oriented to this reality you can account for your actions and you have to like you know there are consequences for actions you know and but there is a balance because there are people who have like disordered thinking people do deserve like to be able to experience you know life and to react to trauma without being thrown away You know, there is space for empathy and there is like, it's just a balancing act, I think. And And I'm glad you said the oriented to reality part. Yeah. Because like we, at some point we have to admit that someone experiencing psychosis is different than someone who has a personality disorder. Yeah. Like Like, there's a different level of accountability there. Yeah. Like if you're not even like, you know, if you're not oriented, like time, place, like all of that, like you, if you, if you aren't oriented, you're not playing with the same like deck of cards as everyone else. So like, I yeah. think it is just like, again, it's that balance, like being able to balance, which being able to balance, like how to like have people within community and society without necessarily feeling the need to throw everybody away who has any defaults or defects. Um, But I think a large part of that goes back to systemic issues where a lot of, frankly, if you ask me, I think personality disorders, a lot of them can be resolved if we uh, like adjusted the way that we operate as a society. Like trauma is systemic. Like think of how a lot of housewives in the 1950s were like (laughs) traumatized, deeply traumatized by the way that their lives were set up because of the way systemically they didn't have the same options um, as a lot of women do now. But even still, like, you know, we have a lot of systemic issues that women go up against, which create a lot of dysfunction. And, and the same goes across the board for a lot of people, like, no matter the identity. I also am a huge, like, proponent of, like, disability theory. I think society disables people. Um, and I think like if we function better as a society, a lot of the issues that we face can be shifted, but there are, there is also, again, balance, like the genetic components, like some people actually have, um, like mental health, um, um, mental health, um, uh, things that they have to go up against and face that are genetic. Like, like, you know, if you are, you have bipolar, like there's a genetic, um, predisposition to it. And, like, there's just a balancing act. And I think one of the issues comes when people try to place everything on the same, like, plane, when it's a matrix. It's not, like, just a plane. It's a matrix. Like, there are different factors that contribute to everything. And I think when we strip ourselves of the nuance and we don't approach it with nuanced thinking, which often happens when things are watered down through pop psychology, like, it really does more of a disservice than it does a service. 
And I think people are probably wondering, like, what the hell does all this have to do with codependency? But I think it is really connected because I think that whole conversation, like, it revolves around this this thing we have in our culture where you can either have empathy for someone or you can expect accountability from them. Like, we see those as opposite, right? And so I think people who are struggling, they feel alone and they desire connection and they desire allowed to be human. And so what that that comes out as like, hey, this is a disorder, have empathy for me, don't demonize me. And that's just that same like kind of cry of the heart of like, don't put me out. And but then the opposite of it, which is like when people get really harmed by people and they're going, no, I'm not going to just excuse that by going, oh, I feel so sorry for you, you've abused people. Um, And people truly can't imagine a world where empathy and accountability happen in the same place. And I think that that is one of the things that leads to what we call codependency, right? I end up in a relationship with someone. I don't feel like I have worthiness outside of somebody else's value of me. And so I ha- there's this person. And so if that person is harming me in some way, I don't know how to hold that in a space Right. And so I end up thinking, well, I have to have empathy for them. I have to have empathy for them. I have to have empathy for them. And I don't expect accountability. And my own self-worth is so degraded that I find myself in a dynamic where I continue to run back to either the same person or the same types of people that I need connection so badly. But then when I get that connection, it further harms me and that makes me need it more. And we kind of end up like there. There is something happening there, and it kind of comes back to boundaries, which is another thing that I think we get wrong with boundaries. Ah, my goodness. The hyper focus on boundaries often. When I love talking about boundaries because I do, boundaries are very important, like for community. But a lot of the ways that we talk about uh, boundaries in this mental health space that we all (laughs) exist within is. It hyper focuses on like uh, individual, like the hyper individualism. Like I said before, like the same problem with codependency. Like it tries to like push people further to isolate and to sever connections with people around them, as opposed to like like you know, and you know, of course, there are the people who are trained mental health clinicians who actually talk about it in a way that I think is like really healthy and helpful. And then there are the people who like try and push people further towards isolation and disconnecting from people around them. And I think there's a lot that we get wrong (laughs) as a society. And I think that's why conversations like this do matter, though, because they're like, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, wow, you really did shift my my perspective or thinking on this because I didn't think of it like that. And I think it's important for us to just keep pushing the space. Don't get me started on carcerality and like, <laughs> the way that, um, you know, therapists are allowed to exist on the online space. But I'm like a really big advocate for us, like, or people who are professionals, like sharing their expertise online because it is like pretty much part of our duties at this point to combat a lot of like the misinformation and disinformation that is easily spread online Mm -hmm. just around language overall but like even things like you know something as simple as uh trauma dumping like you know i can't tell you how many times 
I've heard people use the term trauma dumping. I can't tell you how many times I've had clients, like patients of mine, come to me and say, like, oh, I'm sorry, I don't want to trauma dump. And I have to let them know, Aww. like, I'm your therapist. <laughs> like, yeah. you're actually supposed to talk about your trauma. Like, that's what I'm here for. Like, you're not trauma dumping because you're sharing your experience. Because a lot of the language that is used in the space is, like, literally used to push people towards isolation mm. and yeah, that was a long-winded way to say I agree, and yeah, it's a mess the way we cover a lot of these things, but we got to keep talking. Okay, That's so let's why. do this. We're going to take a quick break and come back. Are you frustrated by buying your kids' clothes and having them grow out of them within a week? Do they itch, pinch, and they just aren't comfortable? Well, then you need to check out Posh Peanut. Made from this amazing bamboo material, the clothes are legitimately so soft and they stretch with your kids as they grow. They are four times stretchier than cotton. Made to last, loved by parents, and approved by kids. Posh Peanut makes thoughtfully crafted, beautiful and stylish clothing for kids and families designed in-house from beautiful florals to all of your favorite brands, such as Hot Wheels, Disney, Hello Kitty, and Barbie. Their pieces are made with that ridiculously soft fabric, and it even stays soft, wash after wash after wash. Right now, Posh Peanut is offering our listeners 20% off your first order with promo code STRUGGLE. Go to poshpeanut.com slash struggle and use promo code STRUGGLE for 20% off your first order. That's poshpeanut.com slash STRUGGLE, promo code STRUGGLE. Shout out to Claritin for giving me some free samples and for sponsoring this podcast. I am a seasonal allergy sufferer, which means that sometimes I'm lying in bed reading a book that is super happy and my husband says, what's wrong? Why are you crying? Because I am sniffling and he thinks I'm crying. But no, it's just seasonal allergies. Luckily, that does not happen anymore because I use Claritin D. We can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sniffing, sneezing, watery eyes, itchy nose and throat. It's great. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. As for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter, you don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Okay, so I want to move on to talking about like what would be a better way, because I have thoughts, and I know you have thoughts, of talking about what people are trying to talk about when they say codependency, because there's like separate different ways. So I want to give you kind of an example of something that I experienced that I used to identify as codependency when I was young. And then you put your therapist hat on and tell me like, how do you think this would be better conceptualized for someone? So back when I was using I felt just as addicted to people as I did the substances. And there's one specific memory that has always sort of been seared in my head, which it was like a Saturday night. And I was like, okay, I got to, and I had like a, a group of friends and it was a large group. So like sometimes some of them were here, some of them were there, some of them were all together or whatever. And I was calling around trying to figure out like, where's the get together? Like, what are people doing? Like, where's the event or the thing that I can go and be a part of? And part of what I loved about using drugs is I went from like walking into a room insecure to walking into a room where everybody stopped and looked up and went, 
Yay! Like, there she is. And I knew what to do and I knew what was expected. And I, I knew how to inhabit the identity of this like subculture I was living in. And, and so I'm Saturday night and I'm calling around and no one's picking up the phone. And I can't figure out like, is anyone doing anything? And if so, where are they? And, and, and how can I go be a part? And no one's ignoring me. It wasn't like, oh, my friends are hanging out without me. It was just that, you know, I would get someone on the phone. They'd say, oh, I'm not doing anything tonight. And then somebody wouldn't answer. And then somebody wouldn't answer. And then somebody wasn't doing anything. And the more I called, the more frantic I felt because like I couldn't find people to go be with. And it felt as desperate as like calling around for a fix. And nobody has anything. And I'm calling and I'm calling and I'm calling. And I get to like the last person I know to call and nobody's out doing anything. And I literally collapse on the ground and just start hyperventilating and crying and screaming because I feel like my chest is going to cave in if I can't go be with these people and experience that feeling of okayness. And so that was the experience that early on was like, oh, I'm codependent. But so if you had a client that came to you with that experience, like what better language or like view could you give them to understand that experience? Well, first, I am so sorry that is a part of your experience. That sounds like that was really tough. And I can only imagine. I'm sorry that you had to experience that. I know going through stuff like that is not easy, but As far as I'm concerned, it sounds just like how we were just talking about. Like, it sounds like you wanted connectivity, like you wanted to feel connected to a community of people around you. And you didn't feel that in that moment. And I think even beyond that, I would start personally to explore like exactly why it is that you feel so disconnected despite you having these relationships and people you you can call up because... That doesn't come from just like nowhere. I think that is a part of the experience of wanting to be connected. But if you are in a setting where you are surrounded by people and you don't feel connected to the people unless you are physically around them or you're out and you're busy, why do you feel like you need to be connected to people um, or being out in order to be connected? Why are you driven by this like outside validation because I don't even know like it would require so much conversation which is another sidebar when mm-hmm. people ask me for advice which is why I do not give out advice on TikTok like I try my best to avoid it because it's like I would need so much context but this is a point of exploration which is why I'm like jumping leaping directly to um, codependency as like a term to just like stamp it Sometimes it does a disservice because there's so much you can explore as to why it is like that feeling was there to begin with. We are human beings, right? How we are taught to connect to other people um, when we are young. I'm a huge, you know, attachment theory person. (laughs) How we are taught like um, when we're young to like connect to other people, it follows us for a while. It can change over time. Um, But part of that change, if the way we are connecting to people is unhealthy, Um, where we feel like we can't function if we're not connected to other people at all times. Like we have to explore what, where that comes from. Right. And that could be a number of things. Like, you know, some people do have like genetic predispositions to mental health concerns and things that prevent them from being able to like exist without feeling that connectivity. Some people like that's trauma. Like Mm -hmm. it is just a point of exploration if you ask me. And that is the part 
the the point where I would start to explore a little bit further and not just like slap a label on it, you know? Yeah, because that label has become the end of the journey. You know what I mean? It's like you hear that and you're like, oh, codependency. It's like, okay, we have a diagnosis. Let's move on. But here's the thing. In all my years, nobody has ever said what you just said to me specifically. Like literally 20, however many years later, I'm having this aha moment when you said you were connected to people like deeply that loved you, that you loved, that welcomed you, that appreciated you. Why is it that there's no emotional permanence? Because my head went right yeah. to like, yes, I know I need connection, but like I should be able to be okay on a Friday night once in a while being alone. But when you said, first of all, like that's such a human need, like there's nothing wrong with you for needing that connection. But what's interesting is that you had it, but you couldn't experience it unless you were physically with those people. And I think that that's really what the heart of this conversation is about is that like, when you go with, well, you should be healthy. You should be a person who's okay, not always having outside validation. Like we go right to like what's wrong with it instead of what's right. Like there are things in you functioning normally, which is like you need connection, but there's something that has like gotten in the way of your ability to experience, like in my case, like the connection you actually have. And yeah. you said like that becomes the beginning of a journey and the opening of a journey that has a lot less shame than, you know, when I went to rehab and they gave me my first treatment assignment about codependency. And it was like, list the seven ways you're codependent. And why do you need the validation of others? And it push it. And it also says like, you say this really well, where it's like, no one's saying that like, that's not a painful place to be. And that if we were to have to use the term slightly dysfunctional, and that it's just not working for me. But when I went through rehab, and we worked on my codependency in quotation marks, it presented the answer to that as just being my own island, never needing the yeah. validation of other people, never needing to have to be around. And it, so that just puts me right into like this black and white shame place where I yeah. feel ashamed of myself if I can't have my own self-esteem and I feel okay with myself if I can, but I'm never going to get there if the whole journey is this well, I just want to be okay with myself. So I want to do the healthy thing instead of like actually having a healing journey. And I think that that's like the key to the issue is when we talk about pathologizing something versus understanding that like, and I, I used to call this, I had a podcast recently with someone where we talked about this idea of like first person experience versus third person experience, where when I got into the mental health world really young, what quickly happened was this dichotomy of if you're healthy, that's good and you're worthy. And if you're unhealthy and dysfunctional and codependent, like that's not. And so when you do things in this category, you feel shame because you're not good enough. But when you're making therapeutic progress, you are good enough. And everything you experience is from this like third person point of view where there's like this invisible audience saying, good, yeah. now you're doing good. Now you're doing good. As opposed to first person experiences where like, wouldn't it be nice to for a Saturday night where I could make a cup of coffee or watch a movie by myself and, and still enjoy feeling connected and knowing that I'm loved? Like that experience is rewarding in and of itself. It doesn't have to have this extra layer of, and now I'm healthy and I feel like I'm worthy. Exactly. It is just about like being able to feel emotionally like safe, if you ask me. And also, I just cannot 
in this conversation without saying like you cannot heal in isolation that is just like a number one thing um we are a social species we need other people we need relationships frankly like i like one thing i I love talking to when i work with um foster kids i would ask them like you know who who is responsible for these lights being on? And they'd be like, oh, whoever paid the bill. Yeah, but, like, there's also somebody who runs the electricity plant. Like, there are people who, like, build the wiring. Like, we are a social species. Like, we are all connected in ways where we don't even know. If we are connected in those ways, like, we have to connect to other people for other things too, right? And that includes, like, mental health and mental wellness. Like, you need other people and that's okay. And a lot of the times, I will say this because I also have to say this before we close, but, you know, as someone who was recently trained in EMDR, like, I can say, like, one of the things that I worked through because in the training, they make you go through and process your own trauma. One of the things that I worked through was, like, my connectivity to my family because in a lot of ways, people would say I was codependent because I was, like, seeking connection from family, but... When I was able to process and metabolize certain traumas, I recognized, like, you know, like, I just, like, literally had trauma that was not metabolized. And sometimes it is that simple. Sometimes it's not. In fact, I would say none of it is simple. It's all very complex. But that's the thing, right? Like, not settling for, like, these very broad, very sometimes shaming and shameful, like, terms and language because it can literally stop you or get in the way from exploring yourself, your journey, your story, like what is at the root and like helping yourself come to a space where you feel safe because that's it at the end of the day, you feeling safe and connected and tethered and present and all of the things because that's ultimately what I think a lot of us want. Well, and if your codependency becomes like the period before the exploration, because I can totally see if I were to come to you and tell that same story, but the difference would be like, I keep like, I find a group and then they go away where like you would be able as a therapist to go, hey, the issue is you don't have a community and like not having a community and feeling that desperation is a completely different journey and solution than someone that comes and goes, I have a community and they really like me, but I feel desperate if I'm not physically with them. Like that's a totally different way of exploring. And it's also very different than someone coming to you and saying, there's this one particular person who is abusive to me or toxic to me or mistreats me and I can't quit them. Like that's also, and codependency, I think dangerously lumps all of these different issues together with this one stamp of something's wrong with you, go figure it out instead of, you know, realizing like there are a lot of different ways that could show up and different ways to explore that. And one of the things for me, I can't remember which therapist I was like working under when we were talking about addiction, specifically around this idea of like enabling someone or not having boundaries with someone. And they were the first person I heard talk about how like codependency is not helpful term And the terms that she used when working with couples and families where there's like a dyad or a triad of like somebody with, you know, either mental health or addiction or even toxic behavior is she said, like, throw away the word codependency. I want to talk about looking at this relationship, like where are the areas where you might be over functioning and where are the areas where you might be under functioning? Mm -hmm. 
And that to me was such a more helpful way of thinking about it because she would address the person that was like, quote, the identified patient. And we would talk about how like, in terms of community, like you have obligations to community and you have privileges from community and you will occasionally get someone who wants to enjoy all the privileges of community, but consistently under functions when it comes to meeting the obligations of community or the responsibility of community. So whether it's family or community or friends or whatever, and oftentimes another person in response to that person's underfunctioning will then begin to overfunction. So I'll just do things for them. I'll rescue them from their emotions. I'll pay those bills for them. I'll do the, And it was such an easier way of looking at. So it wasn't this person's a piece of shit and you're codependent. I, I really love that. That's it like was a way a of treating way. the community unit. Yeah. I think like the more we talk about this stuff, the more it spreads and gets out there and the more people can like, prob- hopefully somebody will hear this and they will think to themselves like, uh, maybe I should explore a little bit further and not just slap a label on myself. Because I think one thing that you highlighted that is really important is like that shame that comes with like feeling like the problem is you. Um, it really impacts like your ability to function overall. And I think it's important to be able to question and like give yourself grace through it. Mm-hmm. When when you know like that these things can come from so many different like aspects and avenues and you can hold yourself accountable while also holding empathy for yourself, like that makes it a lot easier. I yeah. feel like it's like thinking of the difference between seeing your mental health journey for lack of a better term or your healing, you can see it as a lap pool, like an Olympic sized lap pool, where it's how far am I going? How fast am I going? Am I going in the right direction? How am I going in comparison to the people in the other lanes, right? Like, you can visualize it that way. And that's where a lot of that shame comes in, because it's I'm not moving as fast as everyone else. I'm not moving as fast as I should be. I'm not winning. I'm not doing the correct strokes. I'm not going in the right direction. I'm not moving, you know, all of these things versus seeing it as like a resort pool with a beach entry, right? It's like you can wade in, you can sit in the shallows for a while, you can get deeper, but you can be deeper off to the left. You could be deeper off to the right. You can, you know, there's a water slide that maybe unbeknownst to you, circumstances just plunged your ass right into the deep end, right? Like it's just a so much like, let's just wade into this pool and everyone's doing something different, but it's not this like lap pool where like you're good if and you're bad if. It's like, we're just getting in the pool. Like you might have a toe in, you might have your whole body in, you might be. And what's funny is like, you might be up to your neck because you're standing in the deep end and the water is up to your neck. Or you might be in the shallow end, but you're willing to lay down up to your neck. What a beautiful analogy. Like, Thank wow. you. It just came to me. <laughs> that was actually really, really good. I might have to use that. That do was it. really good. Yeah. I do have a session at 10. I don't know All what right, time well, zone here. Well, we'll let you go. But can you tell everybody where they can find you if they want to follow you? Yes, I can be found at 5-H-A-H-E-M on TikTok and Instagram. And yeah, that's pretty much it. This was such a beautiful conversation. And I hope that somebody out here is questioning the term and the usage of the term codependency and understanding that your journey is important and exploring yourself is important and that no matter what, you deserve to feel safe. 
Yeah. Thank you. We'll put that in the show notes for anybody who wants to link. And thank you so much again. And I hope you come back and we can have more conversations about other things. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us.